0: We are so excited to announce that we're going to be running a new motherhood support group. Starting September 8th, Sina and I will be leading a 10-part group to help reduce stress and cope with the challenges of new motherhood. This workshop offers new moms with babies from 0 to 1, weekly group sessions that cover issues such as body image, the impact of motherhood on relationships and identity, mindful parenting and self-care. The new motherhood support group will provide a space for connection, safety, and empowerment as we embark on the journey of parenting together. You will leave this workshop with a better understanding of motherhood and friendships with other new moms. The workshop will start September 8th and be on Thursdays from 12 to 1.30 p.m. You can register on Eventbrite, link to our website and Instagram at lovelink.co, or email us at info at lovelink.co if you want to learn more. Hope to see you there. Before we begin, we want to let you know that we had a little difficulty with our audio recording. Not to worry though, Dr. Ayazenza sounds great, and it's one of our favorite episodes, so definitely worth listening. Hope you enjoy it.
1: Sometimes I'll say to people, Make them laugh a little. A little humor and therapy doesn't hurt. But I say, you know what? All sex is group sex, and then they laugh. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I'll say because when you're in bed, you think you're just with one partner. You're not. You're with your parents, with your grandparents, The oh intergenerational. <laughs> yeah, too much. <laughs> yeah.
0: Welcome to Lovelink, your guide to love and sex in all forms. We are your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guest today is Dr. Suzanne Iazenza. She's a clinical psychologist specializing in sex therapy and human sexuality research. She has written extensively on how couples can transform their sexual narratives to open up exploration and curiosity about what brings them pleasure. In addition to her clinical work, she's on the faculty of the Institute for Contemporary Psychotherapy and its Psychoanalysis, and Adelphi University's Derner Institute postgraduate program in psychoanalysis. We're so excited to have her here today. Okay. Welcome, so glad that you could be
2: here with us. Thank so you. Yeah, welcome. Thanks. So, I guess to start us off, we just wanted to hear a little bit about what got you interested in uh, sex therapy Mm -hmm. and working with patients around sexual issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, I started in grad
1: school, actually, when I was at NYU uh, in psychology, and uh, a very good friend of mine, when I was trying to think of a a dissertation topic, uh, she was working for the Department of Health in HIV and Safer Sex. Um, And uh, she said, you know, and she had a PhD in sexology, and she said, you know, the whole field of sexology is so interesting, which I had not heard about. Went all the way through a doctoral program, that one course in sexuality. Um, And uh, so she gave me her dissertation, which was about um, the sexual lives of women um, post-breast cancer and uh, mastectomy, and it was just incredible, blew me away. And uh, I realized, uh, you know, it's a kind of field that's so interdisciplinary. You know, it covers history and, and religion and class and race and uh, gender relations and. Uh, health issues, so uh, it really uh, appealed to me. So she gave I said, "Give me a reading list of everybody you admire, who you studied in grad school." And she gave me a list, and um, and I said, "That that's it." So then I just started thinking about what, how did I want to actually apply it to something that was more specifically interesting to me? And at the time, I was doing a lot of work uh, about uh, gender, um, sexual uh, orientation, and Kinsey's work. And uh, thought, let me do uh, something on female sexuality, but as it relates to the fluidity uh, around sexual orientation and sexual functioning.
0: would you mind maybe briefly explaining the Kinsey sexuality scale? because I think that's something that seems really relevant to your work and really interesting and a great deal.
1: Yeah, Kinsey, and there's a couple of movies now about Kinsey. I don't know if you've seen any of them, and there are some books that have been written about him. It was so fascinating, but uh, it was really a paradigm shift. You know, prior to that work, and he did the male study, I think, in 1948 and the female study in 1953, think about that and he did it in the Midwest. You know, often I'll tell my Midwestern joke, if anybody's from the Midwest, I say, you know, a lot of people in the, on the East Coast or the West Coast think we're always the really progressive ones, you know, the ones who break ground. But really, the two greatest sexologists were from the Midwest, because Kinsey was doing his work in Indiana, and Masters and Johnson were doing their work in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Unexpected, so, uh, yeah, can you believe it? Yeah. And, and the kind of work they did finding subjects, uh, you know, certainly Masters and Johnson's work was even more radical, because they found people, when you think about it in the 50s and 60s, to come into a lab and go behind a one-way mirror, get undressed, have sex while people in white lab coats are taking notes. Oh Can God. you believe that? I mean, they and do. I think if we tried to do that research us now, we'd probably get arrested Absolutely. or and certainly not get funding. Yeah. So, and then Kinsey wasn't doing that kind of research, but still he was asking, they developed this remarkable, uh, you know, interview that was, you know, really where they sat and talked to people. Uh, and, and it was very depth about a vast assortment of sexualities and uh, sexual experiences or functioning. But one thing that came out of Kinsey was this real paradigm shift. Prior to his research, people, well, first of all, homosexuality is pretty much a secret anyway, a secret life, but I think people basically thought a binary, if they did think. Mm -hmm. People were either that way, which at that point was kind of the sick people, the perverted people, and then they were the healthy ones who were heterosexual. Uh, And then when Kinsey came up with that continuum, it was a real paradigm shift. And if you go back and read the responses to that work, it was really intense, very negative. You know, like he got slammed by religious folks. They got slammed by psychoanalytic folks. You know, like, uh, you know, there was a lot of pushback. A lot of people were threatened by it because, you know, if you at least have your own little category, then I know who you are, right, in relation to me. But the idea that people were that fluid and so many people occupied that bisexual range um, because it, I think they found that 10% of people uh, had, uh, were in the um, more same-sex, either attraction or behavior. And then a lot, I think it was at least 50 or 60% were on the heterosexual. But still that left too much of an uncomfortable middle ground, even 20 to 30%. And people were like, who are those folks? oh you know if if you're my next door neighbor now you could be you know interested in me and i thought you were married to this man and you know so it really uh i think it changed the whole field um and he died young actually some people thought so much of that pressure just was Mm -hmm. so difficult for him but he really broke ground and now we use that continuum idea right about gender Mm -hmm. and gender identity i mean it really applies to so many other things in gender and sexuality so such a really such a gift and i have to say clinically That you would think everybody kind of knows Kinsey's name, but so many patients actually still have trouble sometimes accepting the fluidity they have within their category. So let's say a heterosexual person can come in, and I always ask in sexual histories, which I do individually, not together, so that you know, the halves of couples can hopefully feel free to answer certain questions that I would put more in the private realm, like masturbation, you know, not all people share with their partners their masturbatory behaviors or their fantasies, and I also ask about same and opposite sex sexual experiences, and like for a heterosexual person to say, well, I actually do have some same-sex attraction, they could say that with so much shame still. Even now, when you mm-hmm. think we have marriage equality, so there's been so much progress with homosexuality, but for some people, they, do, they don't uh, get that the fluidity is really more normal uh, than not. Or, or gay people who come in and say, oh my God, I had a dream last night of well, I want to have sex with this you know, opposite-sex person. And they think, what's wrong with me? Should I break up? Maybe I'm not gay. They get very kind of concrete about the fluidity.
0: There's really a pressure to identify, and I think still yeah. quite a bit of stigma against bisexuality. Absolutely. Yeah, people don't think it exists. A no. lot of people are like, deny. no, they are. They deny that, right.
2: De- like if they're bisexual, they're really, yeah. they're Gay, really gay who, who are not a, out of the closet, right? Or they're just That's experimenting. Right.
1: Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of still biphobia. It's really, you yeah. would think, really, how come about that? But it's almost like in the trans community, too, where some folks could feel like who want to occupy the gender queer area, so they intentionally... You know, don't really say I'm either male to female, female to male, or uh, or I want to be ambiguous, or I want to be blended, or you know, there's so many different words, and and uh, um, that some people feel uh, that they get more, they make people more anxious. See, I think basically, I think in human terms, and maybe anthropologists could answer this better, um, that you know probably there's a biological reason for why we want to know who you are because then I know who I am and you know there might be something that feels safe about that but certainly it wreaks havoc on the, on the psychological level can on the relational level. It
0: denies certain parts of us that then are really repressed. Absolutely, or
1: yeah. yeah. Probably uh, I'm trained as an analyst not just as a, a sex therapist and I, I The thing I like about psychoanalytic work is that there's a playfulness and openness about the fluidity, at least of the psyche, you know, doing dream analysis, for instance, so that when you're trained in dream analysis, you know that you could dream anything and it doesn't mean concretely. So let's say if you're a married woman to a man and you have a dream about making love to your best friend, female friend. That doesn't mean, oh, my God, I'm a lesbian. It would mean, like, well, who is who, you know? And actually, well, who is that other woman? And maybe it's a part of yourself that you're embracing. or You are you know, like, there's so many ways to analyze dreams. So analytic work really allows for that kind of fluidity of the psyche in ways that some other, uh, you know, psychological fields or, or just the general public could be much more concrete.
2: I'm curious to hear a little... A little bit more about um, the idea of gen- of uh, fluidity. Mm-hmm. So, because there's also the idea that you can be emotionally attracted to. Uh, either the same sex or opposite sex, and then sexually attracted to yes, the yes, other the yes. other sex. That's um, a, that's a good
1: point. It's really work that was done after Kinsey. One of the people who uh, I don't know if you know about who I like a lot is Fred Klein's work, right? And he published a book called The Bisexual Option. Actually, that he originally was interested in, in really opening up the, that that uh, the field about bisexuality. But he developed an instrument uh, based on Kinsey. Um, with like, several of his colleagues that um, is called the Klein Sexual Orientation Grid. And what, it do- what he argued is that Kin- one of the um, limits of Kinsey's work is Kinsey's continuum only measured uh, behavior and attraction. So it's who do you actually have sex with, men or women, and uh, who you most attracted to if you're walking down the street, men or women. Um, and uh, actually, Klein and his colleagues said there are actually seven different aspects So they broke that down into attraction, behavior, emotional preference. And then they had fantasies, which we love that, right? The fantasies, the dream life. And then uh, they also had, uh, I think, social identification. So like, who do you like to hang out with, men or women? And then there was another one about um, who would you like to hang out with, gay people or straight people? And then there was self-identification. So, how do you define yourself? Do you like? Do you say I'm gay? Do you say I'm straight? Do you say I'm bi? So they had those seven different aspects, and so you imagine seven continua, and they and they documented all this research where people could be all over the map, right? And then how do people really relate to that kind of fluidity? You're absolutely right. It's it could be challenging.
0: So when you are on a spectrum and you are more fluid with your sexuality and you are committed to a partner that's Mm -hmm. sort of set in their gender Mm -hmm. and sex, I mean, how do you work with that um, with a couple when it doesn't always match?
1: Yeah, and for some people, they come in with that as the presenting problem or sometimes not. It sometimes emerges in the work. But um, I I do have an element in my work where I like to empower patients. Uh, You know, I'm an educator. I'm not just a therapist, so I do a lot of training and teaching. And um, So I really uh, think that it helps for people to become educated about some of this research or some of this theory. So I will talk to people about Kinsey. I talk to people about Klein's work and what the results were on how this fluidity can be there, and there's nothing wrong with it per se. Um, hopefully to release enough of the shame that people might have or the concern, whether it's self-pathologizing or other pathologizing, to say, could we just be curious about it? Can we move it from what's wrong with you or me to um, what does it mean? And what does it mean if you was a couple? So that let's say if you have the bisexual woman with the lesbian woman, the woman who has had like on those seven scales, all women, and the other one could be a little fluid. Has been with men may still sleep with a man if they had a chance or whatever the mixture is so what meaning does that have for you in your relationship right now what's threatening about it um, what could be exciting about it um, and some women might say for instance let's say the lesbian all the way down the line might say well I can't compete with a man that's what's but thre- I've heard that in therapy some women say well at least if my female partner you know, wanted to be with this other woman, I feel like at least I can compete, but if she's into this man, how am I going to compete with the man? Mm -hmm. So that's sometimes what some people will say. Or some people just don't like the idea of it or, you know. So uh, hopefully I help people, and when I'm working with a couple, because I do some of that, uh, the sexual, all the sexual history taking separately, it gives me an opportunity, if that were a presenting problem, to be able to ask what's complicated about it in a couple contexts, but then I could ask them individually what's complicated about it. And and within a context of doing a whole sexual history, from when I start with a question, what's your very first memory of sexuality? So we could be starting a sexual history with their first memory at five or something, and tracking all of the narratives that come out of that history. Then also, if you're uncomfortable with your partner's bisexuality, there could be something in their history that, that contributes to that discomfort. That might relate to sexual fluidity or not. It could relate to something else. Let's say um, that person's father had an affair. and What could be uh, kind of woven into that fear of my partner's bisexuality is that I saw my mother suffer with my father's infidelity and unconsciously even that person could be um, kind of conflating. Their partner's sexual fluidity within the potential of infidelity, right? Mm-hmm. And they might not even be aware of that. All they could be doing is shaming their partner or freaking out the night they found the partner shared with her, you know, their fluidity. You know right. what I'm saying? So,
0: right. so bringing this into awareness, bringing this into consciousness, having it be a part of the conversation doesn't doesn't push away those memories and feel like it's taboo or or take it out on your partner without even realizing it. You're really getting it into part of the relationship
1: that's right and part of one's individual history so to be curious with whatever and this is generally how i do couple therapy whatever the issues yes how did it get co-created or how does it have a life within that couple but also what what were you bringing in already that you brought on board either consciously or unconsciously that co-created that in the life of the couple right and sometimes much more of the of the source of the conflicts or issues or even before they even met this person. But they apply it, they, they attribute it to this person. And that's when you can have people say, I should just break up with this person and replace them with someone else, and it's gonna be better. And then if I do a sexual history or general history, I say, well, you know what? It could be these issues are gonna cut piggyback right onto your next relationship. It doesn't necessarily, is contained with this partner. Right. As I think that's a really important couple's function is to help people, you know, kind of separate that out. How much am I bringing to the table that, you know, already was there before I met you? And then how much God really co-created between us for who we are.
2: This is making me, as we're beginning to talk about seeing couples in therapy, you know, I'm thinking about how difficult it is for a lot of people to talk about their sexuality, to talk about their sexual histories. I mean, it's a lot to ask of people as they're coming in. You bet. In our culture, we're not very good about talking about sex and that's people right. don't have models when they're growing up mm-hmm. I mean I've seen many patients who never have talked to se- about sex with anybody before that's right so I'm curious how you get people comfortable talking about sex
1: yeah that's a great question usually the way I I conceive of it is um if I can help them feel comfortable talking with me first and then I can trans- transfer it over to them um, that at least that's the that's kind of the way I approach it that I find can be helpful. That's one of the reasons why I do the sexual history taking individually because um, there are pros and cons. You could do it either way. I, and when I was initially trained, actually, it was um, keep the couple together. And some people, couples therapists, really believe you should always keep the couple together, so you never see them separately. There are a lot of different theoretical, um, you know, uh, perspectives about that. But with the sexual part of a person's life, I think because there is the difference between secrets and privacy, which, you know, people should know about, and there is this private part. Like, let's say, often when I explain this to couples, I'll say, you know, what could be private? Like, masturbation. And that isn't a secret, like, oh, you're bad because you don't tell your partner you just masturbated this morning in the shower, or you're not being secretive because you don't share with them what you fantasized about. Now, some couples might say... Well, they shouldn't have any secrets. Like when I ask couples, I don't tell them. I tend to ask them, do you know something called privacy, secrecy? Do you have an notion of what privacy is? Some couples will say to me, well, I don't know. You know, it wouldn't be healthy for anyone to have even a private thought. Like if you're masturbating, I should know. Or if you have an attraction, I should know. And if it's not me, that's bad too. And and it's all grist for the mill, right? Our jobs, oh, boy. I often say. That's where our account of transference can come in, right? you got to yeah. sit there. Like when I've had people actually say, oh, no, every thought he has, you know, I should know, because that's what a healthy relationship is. And, you know, and let's say he believes the opposite. And then, of course, they could look at you and say, well, what do you think, Dr. Iacenza? And I'll say, well, last I checked, I didn't go to law school. I'm not a judge. I went to psychology, which means I help you decide what do you think about that difference. But. um so, it's really important that I have found it's more common than not that people have shame in their f- sexual histories, they have secrets mm-hmm. or something they've never told anybody. So um, when I explain to couples why I think it's so important that I will be seeing you often like in the first session I'll say, um, you know, at some point when we feel it's re- we're ready, uh, I will want to take complete sexual and family histories and I do that separately. And uh, let's talk about how you feel about that. And then I also make it very clear. Um, w- and This is so important. Therapists can make this mistake if they don't ask this. But you want to make it clear. Is this information you share with me confidential? Or do you want it to be transparent? Meaning what you share with me um, would come back into the couple. And that's that's grist for the mill. What some therapists do is they just decide. Like some therapists would just say, it's confidential. Um, uh, but I like to, maybe it's the analyst part of me, maybe it's the troublemaker part of me, who knows. <laughs> but there's a part of me that says, no, That's part. that could be part of the work, is to put that question to them and see what comes up. And uh, in most couple uh, kinds of issues, if they agree, there's not a lot of energy about that, right? But it's more if one person says, well, I think it should be confidential, and the other says, well, why should it be confidential? You have something, you know, that you're keeping from me, and before you know it, it can open up, are there any issues of trust they have or questions? Um, but I don't proceed with the individual histories until we have an agreement about that. And most of the time, I haven't had, in 30-plus years of doing this, I haven't had that be a deal-breaker. In fact, it, it often can open up people's fears. It can open up fears of, I, you know, it brings up fear for me that he could maybe tell you things that I don't know. You know, because there's a triangle in a a couple therapy and now you have some, even if it's not like the worst fear people could have is, oh, he's going to tell me he's having an affair, right? And she doesn't know. But um, sometimes it's just the idea that I may have a closeness with one partner or a knowledge or an intimacy that maybe they don't know about. And other people, it could give you a little bit of an idea of how separate, you know, how differentiated people are, right? From Bowen's work and how comfortable that do they feel that a partner could have a private thought, share it with me. Um, but ultimately, um, when I do see them individually, and my histories can be like uh, I could take four or five sessions, sometimes more, with partners individually. individually. So when you think about what that means with weekly psychotherapy. Mm. And sometimes couples uh, want to continue the couple's work. It could be either I see the couple every week and I'm seeing the separate couple, the partners each week too, so that could be three sessions a week, or it could be every other week, couple, one partner, couple, one partner. But it could take months to get sexual history taking, which I also find can be very therapeutic because it means that whatever way they could feel shame or have secrets or just feel very embarrassed to talk about sexuality, it's unfolding in a very kind of gradual way this isn't like throwing someone into the deep end of the pool it's really having a, a great deal of respect for this area of a very private area for most people and a, and one that either known to them or unknown to them could can contain a lot of shame or conflict or trauma you have no idea what's going to come out in a sexual history and sometimes people share things that they didn't realize until they're in the sexual history.
0: I think because these kind of questions aren't asked of people often, so much of it is unformed, That's unthought right. of. I mean, Sina and I just right before this, we <laughs> yeah. were discussing our earliest memories of sex right. and sexuality. Right. And just that alone kind of made me think of all of these memories that I hadn't really thought of. That's right. Sort of, some of which seemed odd now, some of which seemed normal. You know, yeah. and so I think it just really kind of makes you realize that there's so much that really goes kind of unspoken.
1: And things that you wouldn't even call sex then, that yeah. now when you're recalling um, or in response to a question, and or sometimes I would say, does that sound like something you would call sexual? Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes i say with trauma, for instance, it's very classic where people could uh, think that everybody has this experience at home, whether it's getting hit or dad coming into your bed at night and doing things that feel weird, or whatever, depending on the dynamics of that family or how people adjusted to that, or the loyalty issues and so forth, is definitely the secrets part of it, that sometimes the first time people can begin to unpack that is in a sexual history.
2: What are the different components, if you just give like a brief rundown of the different components of a sexual history taking, mm-hmm. what's involved in that? What are the, what are the topics that, mm-hmm. you, what, that you talk about when mm-hmm. you do that with a patient?
1: I, I think I bring a big narrative approach to my work. I love Michael White's work. Um, and so I see the sexual history almost like a conversation that it's an opportunity for someone, with someone who hopefully is non-judgmental, who's curious, who's um, going to um, ask questions just to help a person find out, well, how are they going to narrate this? What is their story? So I start with a question, what's your earliest memory of sexuality? That I ask everybody, and I deliberately ask about, I say, sexuality and not sex. And sometimes it's not related to even sexuality. Like some people have uh, started telling me about gender. Identity. Right. I was a. To- I remember when I was a tomboy, and blah. And they start telling me, so uh, or I've had. I had. Uh, I have people who let's say um, a primary identity, is skin color or race, who could say who could start with. I remember the first time I really realized that my skin color was different than my best friend. Oh well, tell me about that story. Oh, I went into his house and, you know, and so that racial identity or skin color was part of the body or, and something called sexuality, which is really about identity, but that the primary identity or a relationship to body was around race or skin color. You never know, or it could be gender or gender identity. It's not So that's why sexuality pulls for, unconsciously, a much broader, kind of free association to it. If you think of it as the first ink block you're showing them, if you're giving an ink block test. Sexuality, what do you what's your association to that? And then wherever they start is fine. Some people might start with my first memories when I was sixteen, which I would make note to self, like, why don't you remember anything before you're sixteen? But I wouldn't say that right off the bat, I'd just say, okay, what's your first memory at sixteen? Let them start to unfold that story. And then eventually I probably would come back and say, um, you know any any hypotheses on why you don't remember anything before sixteen any stories anyone told you about your life before sixteen or what do you make of that
2: mm-hmm.
1: right but once they tell that first story, let's say they tell the story of the uh, playing doctor. oh well, you know me and Johnny and Mary got together and we kind of undress and look at each other then I'm thinking, okay, that's a that's a very primary story. so now I really want to spend time with that story and unpack it so once they told me about them and John and Mary or whatever they were doing, then I'd say, well, what do you think you were thinking when that was happening or feeling or sensing your body? You know, that's sort of like the EMDR kind of thinking of how are we processing things neurologically? And usually with most experiences, we have thoughts associated things, feelings, and sensations in the body. So I'm kind of curious how those things were working. Then I'm also going to be thinking about well, what was that experience like for that person, that first memory? Is it one that's pleasant? Oh, it was so much fun, and I had pleasure in my body. Was it, uh, you know, riddled with guilt or, um, or with shame? Um, you know, some people tell me their first memory is actually, I remember, you know, it was 9 o'clock, and then my dad's door opened, and he started walking down the hall, and I started getting that sick feeling, and they're going to tell me about a story of incest. Uh, you just don't know what story they're going to tell you. But whatever story they tell me, I sit with and and help them become curious about, okay, their body came online in some way with this story about sexuality that really smear me. Let's, let's get a sense of how that formed them, how their sexual narrative started with that beginning story. And then sometimes I might ask, let's say with the playing doctor, I might say, well, did anybody ever, like, walk in on you? Like, did your mother or father or somebody else's know? And and then I get hypothetical, I might say, well, because now I want to know, in this little kid, what kind of context, familial, cultural, in terms of gender, race, class, whatever, within what context, historical, did they have that experience? So now I want to start bringing the circle out, the context from that internal body, thought, feeling, sensate kind of level to now we're going to get a little more social. So first, one of the social contexts will be family, right? So then I'd bring mom or dad in or whoever their family was. So let's say mom did. So mom, no, nobody ever walked in on me. What if your mother did walk in on you? Mm -hmm. How do you think your mother would have reacted? So now we start to get into the what ifs so that I could start to get a sense of, well, was this little kid's sexuality growing up or becoming alive or coming online within a permissive one? Or would the mother said, How dare you? And I've heard these stories. I mean, I hear incredible stories of shame right off the bat. You know, how dare you? You'll never get to see Johnny and Mary ever again. I'm going and calling Johnny and Mary's mother. They do. Then Johnny and Mary are getting in trouble. You know, it's a big deal. Don't you ever touch yourself like that again. You know, I've had people tell me terrible stories in terms of masturbation and being caught, and then they're dragged into, like, the living room, and my dad gave me the Bible and said, now read that Bible, and then they called my family in and said, see what Johnny was doing? terrible yeah. stories.
0: Yeah. Even parents, I think, with the best intentions totally. are really uncomfortable often with little children having sexual experiences. And so even if they don't want to shame them, end up doing that inadvertently.
1: Yeah, and a lot of parents, one of the people I quote when I teach is uh, Peter Fonagy. I don't know if you know his mm-hmm. yeah, sure. Well, Peter wrote a great article, um, uh, one of his only, on sexuality by the way. Um, and one of the things he said in that, you know, obviously he focused a lot on dysregulation as it relates to mirroring and, and being attuned emotionally just as a parent right and really good parenting is knowing your little child doesn't have the skills to know what that feeling is and how to relate right so you see Johnny he's upset he came out off the playground Johnny you look sad what happened oh did little Peter not play with you yeah he played with you know and you help. you know what that makes sense I would feel angry too you know when I was a kid you know and you help a kid digest that feeling right and you mirror them and you're attuned with them and that's how kids grow up to be able to be Kind of like emotionally regulated, right? You look at emotional regulation or dysregulation one uh, Point that Peter makes in this article around sexuality is that for most parents They don't know how to mirror or be attuned to a little kid's sexuality They either can err on the side of "I I see no evil hear no evil, you know or they can be overly, you know, interventionist and with whatever anxieties or, or, or shame or guilt they have. Uh, and so he makes a point that because parents don't know and they're not taught how to sexually be attuned to their kids and to mirror, sexually mirror their, their budding sexuality, most adults are sexually dysregulated. It's a really interesting, so he takes the emotional dysregulation kind of Brain and puts it onto sexuality. I I just feel that so resonated for me in
0: my work.
2: It's so important because yeah, so many parents feel so intensely uncomfortable and then they get paralyzed most of the time.
0: Well, then it just gets perpetuated after generation after generation, Mm -hmm. so we live in a culture of shame around sex. That's right. So
2: actually, I have a question about masturbation and children because um, I was sharing the story with Simone that one of my friends has a Mm four-year-old who was masturbating in the living room. And they don't really, they didn't, she didn't know what to do. Yes. Um, and I'm curious what, what you would do in a situation like that. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually the father picked her up mm-hmm. and you know she said, it's okay to do this, you know, it's okay to masturbate or however he described it mm-hmm. in child language. Mm-hmm. But we do that in private, we mm-hmm. do that in our room. Um, but she was really paralyzed by it. She didn't know what to do. Yeah, and it's
1: interesting why the father, let's say, in that situation, could do it and she couldn't.
2: Yes. So let's say there were
1: a couple I was seeing, hopefully with no shame, because she might feel ashamed, like, oh, God, I was so paralyzed and look, my husband had to do it. And I'll say, well, you know, if we could reel that back a little, it's hard to explore anything we shame. But let's be curious about... I would probably at that point say, "Well, what are your memories in your childhood about how you masturbated, and do you have it? What are your memories about? Did your parents ever see you? Where did you masturbate? Because you wonder how much, when parents are frozen, it's something that you know is they're recalling or they're reliving, right? And and I'd be very curious with that with the husband. How come you were able to intervene? and intervene in a it sounds like pretty non-shaming way because certainly with kids sexuality one of the things when i talk to parents is you definitely want to mirror does that feel good mary you know oh that's great that your body can feel that way right when you touch yourself that way that's great our bodies are built to be able to feel those things that's great and sexuality is a is an area that often we want to do in certain places more than others, like our bedrooms or a bathroom, because sometimes, you know, showing that to other people, you know, that's a, that's a part, like when we, we bathe, right? Like when we take a bath. We don't invite, you know, Grandma and Aunt Mary and Uncle Jim into our bathrooms, right? There's certain things about our bodies that we take care of private. So you're starting to teach kids about privacy, private and public versus you're not a bad kid because you did it in the living room. You know, it's almost like teaching a kid, you know, don't leave your cups on the table, thanks. Could you bring them into the, into the sink? Because yeah. that's where dirty cups belong, right? They don't belong, you know, scattered all over the house. So it's like one of those, how do you teach your children? You know, the just um, the behaviors. Right. You know.
0: validating yeah. and educating.
1: Yes, you want to validate yeah. because you want them to feel good about that your body could feel that good. Right. Isn't that great? That's right. yeah. We invite you to spend the next few moments to just listen. moment was brought to you by non spelled n-o-n the sound meditation app for iPhone where no two sessions are alike why do people come in in the first place Uh, why do people come in for sex therapy therapy,
2: yeah
1: you could you know there could be a list of reasons right Uh, you could have people coming in who um co-own a problem that's probably the easiest one, right? But that's true in most couples' work. They both come in and say, we have a sexual issue. We're either not having sex enough, we're not, you know, so they're on the same page. Those are the easier couple of cases, whether it has to do with sex or whatever, right? The harder ones are what we call the discrepant cases where people come in and uh, it could be that one is coming in under duress some people come in uh, afraid. I've had many, uh, actually, partners say, I'm coming here because I'm afraid if I don't deal with the sexual issue, my partner's either going to have an affair or they're going to leave me. So sometimes they're not coming because they really would. In fact, they they kind of would accept their sexual life, that it's good enough, or or it's defensively lived. In other words, they're fine with no sex because sex is really fraught for them. So if their partner didn't have a problem with it, I'm okay not having any. Um, They may not say that in front of a partner. They may say that to me alone, but it's important material to get. So they can come in with different, or it could be more of what we can call the more behavioral problems. Like a man could come in and say, I really am disturbed by my erectile dysfunction or or difficulties. And the partner could say, yes, that's true. It's really affecting our sex life, women with painful uh, penetration. Uh, So there could be physical issues people are coming in with. There could be more of desires, the number one issue. That's no, no great surprise, right? So the number one issue we deal with is people coming in even, either with no desire, either one has it, or the discrepant desire, where one person has more desire than the other and it's creating problems. So those are the most common, probably the desire issues. And then sometimes wrapped within those could be issues of erectile issues. You know, you could lose desire if your body doesn't do what you think it should or if there's frustration or shame about that or conflict about it that you could even, not consciously but unconsciously, just tamp it down. Trauma could be another one, either known or unknown, Uh, you know, rape, assault, uh, incest, um, that um, someone either has dealt with an individual therapy or never dealt with and it affects the sex life and sometimes it's not that type of abuse it could be i've found in histories that what connects the shutdown and desire or functioning has more to do with relational trauma so it could be like divorce in a family it could be an affair that happened. It could be a mental illness of a parent that never got treated or acknowledged. It could be substance abuse, and you know, things that create more like what we say—attachment wounds and trauma and relational trauma—could uh, be the source of sexual shutdown. So any of that can happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is why I think it's all the more important that you do take this kind of extensive sexual history.
1: I'm a big fan of it. Yeah, it
0: sounds like so many of these factors. <coughs> likely relevant to what's coming
1: up totally yeah mm-hmm. now the, the field of sex therapy just historically it, uh, the that has been more cognitive behavioral some therapists would be just in the present moment they believe that's where the work happens you have x y or z sexual issue let's just deal with how can we make a change now and I just for me it's my analytic training I just think and my couples training you know the relational context all these symptoms are happening, though, within a context. A life-lived and uh, and a couple context. So why not take history? I've only regretted when I haven't taken the history. Mm. That's been more of a regret.
0: Because then there also seems to be two schools of thought in sex therapy, which is that <coughs> sex, sexual issues are a function of relational problems. Like, there's some kind of miscommunication, there's some kind of attachment issue, and then there are some... There are some Psychologists who say, you know, sometimes there can be everything going very well in a relationship, and then just sexual problems emerge. Yes.
1: Um. And both can be true. We're going to be feminist, right? And say it's probably both and, not either or.
2: Those are really interesting couples. I think the couples where things are going well. That's right. In other areas, yeah, right. they like good right. friends or. Well,
1: you know, there's this whole area. I don't know if you've read is Pepper Schwartz's work on pure marriage. I wrote a paper on this earlier that because I, th- I was so fascinated by it. But Pepper Schwartz did this incredible study. She's a sociologist and a sex uh, sexologist in I think it's the University of Washington, and she and Philip Blumstein back in the 80s decided to do a massive national study on. Couples. And what was so great about it at the time was they, they actually did the effort to get heterosexual couples who were married, heterosexual couples who were cohabitating but not legally married, gay male couples and lesbian couples. So they made a real effort in the early 80s to make sure they had balanced groups of those uh, four um you know types, And then they compared them on, I think, how they dealt with money, sex, power. There were a few different variables. But one of the most interesting things was they found that there were these two types of couples, even across those four groups, which are the ones that they called more traditional couples, which meant power was not equally distributed, and one person kind of called the shots more than the other. But it wasn't a conflictual thing. In other words, they were comfortable with that. And in heterosexual couples, many times it was the man calling the shots. Um, but uh, and in gay male and, and lesbian couples, some of them had those arrangements. And then there was this other couple type, though, called the pure marriage, and that's what they called it. And um, what they were curious about was the relationship between pure marriage or traditional, and then how sec- quality of sex was or frequency. And I always love talking to people about this when I teach because I say, well, guess what. Which couple do you think more the traditional couples or the peer marriages had the most sex? And which didn't?
0: Traditional, power, the power struggle had, had more and better sex. More sex, yes. I think there's something about sex that um, can be very intrinsic to power and, and kind of um, dominance <coughs> and submission and there creates a kind of different tension. When you have peer to peer, it can be very familiar. It can kind of be the antithesis of what sex is, which is like novelty, unfamiliarity, unpredictability. Maybe we'll some be. aggression. Mm-hmm. Aggression. Yeah, yeah right.
1: So, But Pepper Schwartz at that time, and she, she wrote about this, it was really wonderful at the time. She said, here I was a feminist my whole life. And I was thinking, the feminist movement has done good things for women, especially we do good things for women sexually. And so, it, wouldn't it be great to have this whole generation of, let's say, heterosexual relationships where the men and the women have real equality, and they're both really committed to it. So, that means, let's say, if the woman's job opportunity comes out in California, the men will pick up and leave and go there to support her right isn't that great or they're sharing raising the kids and then these peer marriages had less sex and she said wait a minute how does that work that felt so confusing to her and uh, you're right you know like the analyst in me can make sense about that because so much analytic work in sexuality talks about needing to be and these words may feel uncomfortable to the average person but in analytic terms it's not that violent but you know uh, Christopher Bolas talks about the need for ruthlessness in good sex, or Otto Kernberg talks about, you know, the aggression in sex. So just you brought up those words. And those are healthy. And often with couples, I need to explain to them the difference between aggression, or even ruthlessness, and violence. Because for some folks, especially men, can be very concerned that you know, that especially men in pure relationships, I can't want to be that aggressive to my female partner because isn't that their biggest fear is to be called a perpetrator or to be a man who you know either they or their partner perceives as being abusive so some people really need help in distinguishing between abuse or violence and healthy but hot exciting power play you know aggression submission and i'm not even saying BDSM, which is the much more formal forms of that. But even just in regular ways. So, some people with, some women will come in and complain. In those discrepant desire couples, it's the woman who has more desire. You know, there's kind of this cultural Mm -hmm. idea that those discrepant couples, it's mostly always the men coming and complaining. There are a whole lot of women who come in and they're the one complaining. It's the man who's either inhibited or has less desire. And in some of those cases, when I dig deeper, both in the couple and in the individual sexual histories, I look for are there any ways that this man may have had, as a boy, experiences where there was violence or aggression, and then what they did unconsciously was combine that with now they can't go to playful, healthy aggression because they were witnesses or recipients of violence and abuse that got conflated with aggression, right? So to unpack that in sexual histories, let's say, and help people understand how that might be related to, let's say, low desire, that's all unconsciously, Mm -hmm. you know, this isn't in the conscious mind. That's why, you know, I, I could go on and on about sexual histories. I think you can miss so much if you don't appreciate how unconscious kinds of issues. So sometimes I'll say to people, make them laugh a little, a little humor in therapy doesn't hurt, but I'd say, you know what, all sex is group sex, and then they laugh, <laughs> no, and I'll say, because when you're in bed, you think you're just with one partner, you're not, you're with your parents, with your grandparents, the oh, intergenerational, trend. Yeah, <laughs> like, too, much. <laughs> yeah, too much information, yeah. but, you know, when they can be off. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole basis for the sexual yeah. history, yeah. Like, the intergenerational transmission of trauma is really interesting that we talk about in family systems. You get people whose, let's say, parents went through the Holocaust, or grandparents at this point, went through the Holocaust, and then how the depressive or the the anxiety issues can come down uh, and might even affect sexuality. Or sometimes people's grandmothers were raped, and that trauma went down through that parent, the parent side, to this person now, and it's operating in their relationship now. So there, there, there is a lot of group sex going on with all of that you bring in.
2: Right, right. Yeah. So one of the techniques you've talked about, or written about, is this idea of the... Sex menu. Yes. That yeah, that? yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how how um, how you implement that in therapy? Yeah, and that actually answers your earlier
1: question, which I didn't answer completely. Is how do you help people feel more comfortable talking about sex? Because other than the let's say the history after the history is done after all those sessions toward the end of the history, I'll say to the individual. You know, we start to identify what narratives have we lo- have we identified that you live with that's that's operating now and affecting your sexual intimate life now, and to get permission to bring that into the couple. So then, after the history taking, we can spend two to three sessions sharing my narratives and their, you know, what we found, and and to understand how they're co-creating or maintaining what's going on. So that helps people feel more comfortable about sex, because if they talked about something with me, and then I'd say, and sometimes the partner might say, Suzanne, you, could you tell my partner? Uh, you know, i give you permission to, but I'd like you to be the first one to talk about it. So sometimes I'm the one to say, oh, you know, they were abused when they were six, or this is what mm-hmm. happened, and, you know, so and I'm happy to be that messenger. Or sometimes they can say it now. They can put words to their sexual life, because I already am part of it. They, they kind of rehearsed with me. And they know I'm their ally, and that I support them and don't shame them. So that's one opening about talking about sex. And the second is a much more behavioral-oriented exercise, which I love. Maybe because I'm Italian, I love food. Whatever. But the food, <laughs> <laughs> the food, sex—you know—analogy is not new. But um, I love to bring some humor and lightness because so many people come in with sexual issues it's so fraught and heavy, so to to have some opportunities to start to lighten it up. So with the sexual menu, it's basically saying, look, you know, we do much better with food sometimes in the culture than we do with sex. Like, if you and I are going out, And you know I like Chinese food the best and you like Italian the best. I'm not going to shame you. Why do you like Italian? What's wrong with you? So we don't shame each other for different preferences, right? And we usually will cooperate. So I might say, well, you like Italian. Why don't we do Italian tonight for you? And then maybe next week we'll do Chinese for me or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And then when we're sitting at the restaurant, you might say, you know what? I'm starved. I'm going to have like, you know, an appetizer, an entree, and a dessert. And I might say, you know, I'm not really that hungry. I'm just going to have like maybe an appetizer. Okay, or we might show up and I'm going to say, I'm not hungry at all, but I'll come and I'll keep you company, and you eat, and we'll Mm -hmm. talk while you eat. Now, I talk that way with the food because I'm talking about this can apply to sex. Like, why do people then wind up being shamed? Either they shame themselves or the partner uh, because you really like receiving oral sex, but you don't like to give it. And why does that have to be shameful? Now, it might mean that I really like receiving oral sex. Okay, so how are we going to manage that, not with shaming you or shaming me, but how do we work with differences? So the menu then, once I say, can we be as open or fluid that we might be with our, our different tastes in food, can we bring that to sex? Then I tell couples, I want you to go home, and I want you to write everything you can think of. That is sexual, sensual, erotic. I really try and use words that, again, almost like sexuality versus sex, much more broadly defined. So they're not just coming in feeling like they have to write intercourse, oral sex. Then come in with, I say, think of your five senses. What would you associate with erotic, or sensual, or sexual that you see, or you hear, or you smell, can you or give you some taste? Of yeah, so can I'll sometimes different. say, like, looking at a sunset. Maybe that feels really erotic for you. So I intentionally include non-body, non-sexual, to give them permission to begin to become aware of, well, who is it? Who am I in the world that, that makes me feel alive or passionate or turned on or just awake? Um, so I do intentionally include, you know, maybe cooking a meal together and eating it together for some people might feel sensual. That's mm-hmm. why sometimes, you know, the candlelit dinner is like kind of, some for some people, that's foreplay. Um, and then I say, but also you can include Physical things, sure. But I also include smell and taste, because those are some of those areas that people can have shame about, like that could be erotical turn-ons that they think there's something wrong with them, like people who might be turned on by the smell of sweat, let's say, or the taste of semen or vaginal fluid might turn them on, or, uh, or feces or anything, like, you know, let's do the whole body fluid. So it gives them permission to start to say, include all the senses. And then what I want you to do is write down as many as you can think of. It doesn't have to be too long, too short. Try not to think, what's my partner going to think? What's Suzanne going to think? Just try and write them down. Free associate. Don't share them with each other, but bring them in. And we're going to have you read them out loud in session. And we're going to talk about them so that's like a structured kind of exercise that could get people first just to think about them it's interesting to do it mm-hmm. for yourselves you could do that tonight you <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun thing um and because what would you put down on a list like that it's really fun and then uh, what also is interesting like do they not share it? like it gives you a little idea of how differentiated is this couple like some couples can't bear writing this down and not sharing it before they come in And other people really can't come in. Are too
0: terrified to bring anything in.
1: That's true. That's right. Uh, I've had some people come in with one or two. And I've had other people come in with, like, pages. I had one man who actually was a chef who used his special computer at work to create a menu oh, so, so he came in with appetizers nibbling on her ear you know kissing her the back of her knees or whatever.
2: And then yeah. a couple, is that hilarious? Know. Some people were really playful about it. That would be a great Valentine's gift.
1: It is a great Valentine's gift and then what I have them do which is really essential is that when they come in I say who would like to go first and let's say if you went first then I say now what I'd like you to do is just to listen and not to make any comments and that includes no non-verbal comments if you can manage like no eye rolls or you know like I really because I'm trying to create safe space for this person to share this list and I'm gonna they're gonna share it with me and there's no crosstalk so the person who's listening is actually now going to see it's almost like a version of sexual history taking right because they're gonna see me talk to this person about their their items in a non-judgmental curious way so let's say she has oral sex on there and it's also a chance to do some psychoeducation, I might say, you know, um, I'm wondering, you know, for some people, they like to give or receive oral sex, but other people prefer one over the other. Nothing really wrong with that. Just, you know, people have different feelings. How about you? You just mentioned oral sex, but you didn't say if you have any preferences. How about that? The other good thing about it is that I've already done the sexual histories. So part of what someone could be sharing with me that could be shameful or secretive is something around a body part or a sexual activity that they've never been able to talk about with, the, with their partner so guess who gets to raise the issue I do and the partner doesn't have to know this came from them because I can bring it up mm-hmm. so uh, let's say if the person put down um, uh, let's say they put down anal sex and uh, they'd say so I'd say you know some people are very uncomfortable with anal sex because you know, they get kind of grossed out. of the they, uh, They're fearful to do it because they're afraid that once they get down there, so to speak, that if there's some feces, they're going to get really grossed out. You know, that's just a really common thing. Um, what's it like? What do you imagine it would be like for you? Mm-hmm. Right now, in the history, that person could have told me that they were really so grossed out and and disgusted that they... That's the reason why they never did anal sex again with their partner. The partner never had a clue. So I'm raising it so that I could say hopefully if either one of you have anal sex on your sexual histories, like a lot of couples, they could have issues about cleanliness or maybe then cover some issues about enemas or this great book by you know um, uh, you know M- Morin's book about anal pleasure and health. Maybe you'll read Jack Moran's book. You know, it's a way that you can integrate some of the sexual history right. into the
0: questions. Mm-hmm. It's like an right. invitation and also a time to provide education.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you're also role modeling. So hopefully, again, when you said how do you help couples become more comfortable, hopefully they see me relate like that with her, then when you two go home, and then you'll see me do it with her, then when you go home, you get to start to hopefully, even unconsciously, just say, I could ask that question better. Mm -hmm. I could say, what's that like for you? Or, you know, how come you feel excited about that or whatever? So it's, you're also role modeling how to talk.
2: What do you see happening for couples during that process?
1: Well, sometimes they're really surprised. Like, you know, what's really... One of the most interesting outcomes can be, let's say in that discrepant desire case, where one person feels like they're like Superman sexually and the other one's like a deadbeat or, you know, and it could be some anger about it. And then that supposedly low desire person comes in with quite a rich sexual uh, menu. Right? And sometimes it's interesting to see how, they can't have any crosstalk, but once both people share their uh, list, that's when I open up the floor and I'll say, so now you heard both your lists and how we talked about it, any questions for each other, any surprises? Sometimes the quote, high desire person could uh, be surprising. I didn't know you like to do all that stuff. You could realize after 20, 30 years, some people never talked about sex. Oh, yeah. Somebody could think she never wants to give blowjobs, and the woman likes to give blowjobs. And they never talked about it. you know. So sometimes then, once they, they're past the surprise, they can feel very sad. Grief can come up. Like, I can't believe we lived together for 20 years, and I always felt I wanted this, and you would have done it, and we never talked about mm-hmm. it. People can cry. They can grieve. People can get angry. Let's say a person has masturbation on there, and they they talk quite a lot about masturbating in a, in a discrepant desire couple. And the person with the higher desire... Say, oh well, you're having all this sex with yourself, and you can't have it with me. Great, what's that about? They could be angry. So you never know how the processing is going to go. But hopefully, after doing so much of that dyadic separately, you're creating enough safety and messages about let it. Let's be kind of honorable with this, and let's be you know respectful, and let's be curious and non-judgmental that you could share feelings without being judgmental, and that's then an opportunity to say, it's fine to feel angry about some of this stuff or to feel sad or grief-stricken, but um, let, let's not attack your partner or yourself um, because you have these feelings. You could express those feelings, but not through criticism. So it's an opportunity to help them separate affect, you know, kind of um, sharing with um, attacking.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the menu, there's kind of like a natural therapeutic process that emerges. Not so mm-hmm. only be able to talk about these things, but also even solutions that seem like they emerge. Like, oh, if we both have this interest... That's right. ...and didn't know about it, let's try it. Okay. Yeah, and then I
1: follow that up with a couple sexual menu um, assignment. I'll often say, now you both have your own. Now I'd like you to go home now. This is a joint assignment. Take both your mer- menus and create a couple uh, menu of everything you both feel you could do now. Mm-hmm. and then make a separate list of what you're not ready to do now. And that's fine, so I normalize that, you know, it's fine to have that one where I'm not ready for anal sex or I'm not ready for oral sex or whatever it is. And then they come in with their couple menu. Now you've got a list to be able to start getting homework assignments. Mm-hmm. So then, let's say, with the person who's been sexually abused who's terrified to do anything because just the whole notion of lack of control and unpredictability feels too much like the abuse, well, now they've got the script. So then with some survivors with the other person's permission i could say how about if mary or john picks from the list is that okay with you and the partner could be thrilled like it's like wow we're gonna even try it you know that's great and if they feel my partner feels safer by picking the item so they have control and predictability let's do it so it could be used in that way some are more playful they'll just take them all and write them on pieces of paper Cut it up, throw it in a hat, and say, "Okay, Sunday night we're gonna pick the thing we're gonna do this week." And you know? also, some people get be playful about it, but it really is a good tool for therapists to uh, have that, that couple menu. And I have some couples that once they become more fluid sexually and they're now having sex, and I don't have to give assignments and all that. Um, that they still go back to their sexual menu because I just think it's so much fun. And and also I tell them sexual menus are not engraved in granite. They can be fluid. Mm-hmm. They can change. You could add more things to it. You could change them. You can. So um, it's really a, a wonderful container. I think in sex therapy that the creation of containers is so important. The container of the therapy is there. The container that you could help, um, you know, partners co-create safety, and then these assignments could actually create, like a sexual menu, could be a container.
2: Right. How important is it um, for partners to be open to either trying new things that their partner wants or (coughs) making some sacrifice, you know, uh, if one person doesn't like giving oral sex Mm -hmm. but the other partner really enjoys it and it's really important to them? Uh,
0: how do you compromise in yeah. relationships?
1: Yeah, so well, that's true. Yeah. That's good in all, right? right. You know, I hate to, let's say I hate to go to movies, but, uh, you know, my, my partner loves movies. All right, I'll go to a movie once a month, you know, but will you come to church with me? I hate going to church. You know, whatever. Isn't that part of, like, good relationships? Um, but also, let's say with the person who doesn't like to give the oral sex, I would really, I deconstruct a lot. Mm-hmm. So if someone says, I don't like oral sex, I'd say, let's really figure out how come. And I also normalize. You know, there can be lots of things about doing oral sex that people have very common concerns about, like, you know, maybe how it smells down there or how I smell down there or, you know, what it, how it tastes or uh, or in my mind or my parents who would say, that's a sin, that's a sin, you're only supposed to have intercourse or whatever, right? So I try both as a couple, if I know that's a big presenting problem because they come in with it, then I would also explore it in the individual sessions to see can we get to some of what makes them not like it that we could address? So sometimes, let's say cleanliness is an issue, then you check out, well, could you take showers before you do it or, you know, you want to put some whipped cream on there and chocolate. What's your favorite taste? <laughs> if you afraid of taste, put your favorite, you know, dessert on his penis and try it out, you know, or whatever, you know, to bring a playfulness and a creativity while normalizing that. Because the partner could feel wounded by, you know, some people feel like if someone's not relating to a body part of theirs, they could feel really hurt. It's a rejection. It. Yeah, absolutely. Are my breasts not, you don't like my breasts, you don't like my penis, you know, yeah.
0: I'm also wondering too, with discrepant desire, one issue that I've heard is, um, For example, if a a man maybe has a higher libido than a woman and the woman is torn about whether she should just engage in sexual activity to please her partner Mm. and then this sort of inner conflict of am I just doing this and forcing myself to have sex just to kind of Compromise, yeah, um, and where that kind of balance goes between like knowing what your boundaries are and holding true to what yep. you want versus just doing it to kind of make the situation—that
1: is so important. That's a major issue, and it could be women to men, but it could be men to women too, or whatever you know. Right. How and there's this notion in um, in sex sex therapy, uh, cold willingness, which I like a lot. And willingness is different, this is Joanne Lulon's work, Who uh, she, she was Masters and Johnson trained and she thought that the Masters and Johnson model wasn't adequate enough for women, she felt it was much too kind of focused on just function, you know, you desire. just get aroused and desire and then arousal and then orgasm and that's how men operate more than women, she just felt a lot of women just had issues with orgasm or with desire. So she came up with this great model that inc- starts with willingness, not desire. And that is such a major concept I use all the time that can help people, first of all, not feel broken because they don't feel desire. Because a lot of people feel there's something wrong with them that they don't feel desire. Mm-hmm. And a lot of work now up in Canada, Lori Brado's work and Rosemary Basson's work, these are all really important sexologists, all women up there, <laughs> who actually did a lot of studies on women's sexuality and found that actually the the model that says desire arousal actually is not appropriate for many women that for it may at some point in your life Oh probably Emily and Nagoski might have talked about this too right Responsive can, versus spontaneous. Bosses, yeah, responsive versus spontaneous or another way is to say for some people for when some women desire follows arousal it doesn't precede it mm-hmm. and to normalize that and to educate patients about that is a, I talk about that all the time to patient when you say that in a first session Especially, let's say the woman's the one woman with the low desire, and this could be in the lesbian couples too, by the way, not just heterosexual couples. When I say this research, I can see their whole bodies change. All of a sudden, they're like, "Oh my God, I'm not, you know, I'm not dysfunctional. I'm what are not broken." Because mm-hmm. yeah. this research, and that research was so powerful that changed the DSM. So our DSM is different because of that research. Um, that now there is no. Um, you know, low desire, hypoactive sexual desire dysfunction for women anymore. How about that? I wish they would do that for men too. By the way, I think men get left out of this because yeah, there are a lot of men whom desire is not that easy. Mm-hmm. and they and then they have the additional cultural kind of burden that men are supposed to always be hot to trot, right? They're always supposed to want it. They're always supposed to get hard at the drop of the hat as so many men, actually, so much
0: pressure. a
1: lot of pressure, yeah, yeah. and a lot of men, really, their desire follows more connection, arousal, safety.
0: Mm. I'm going to turn off if you think there's something dysfunctional about you.
1: Totally. Once you start feeling broken, who the heck wants to get close to that one?
0: Absolutely.
1: Right? Yeah. So, uh, I, I'm, I'm, what I like to say to people with a narrative approach about the sexual response cycle um, models is that you're not broken, the model's broken for you. So, you know what? Masters and Johnson doesn't work for you. But it's not because you're broken, it's that that model isn't for you. So how about Lulin's model? You could start with willingness, not with uh, desire. You can end in pleasure, not orgasm, because that's what Lulin offered, which was radical. And she said you could start with willingness, end in pleasure. Once you move from orgasm to pleasure, now you're cooking, because pleasure is a subjectively exper- experienced phenomenon. Nobody could say, what's wrong with you? This muscle didn't start moving, called an orgasm. So you could feel pleasure just by holding your partner as they come, or something. It really gives a broad frame. And then Basson's work actually expanded it even more, and she included things like emotional connection could be an end point.
2: Uh, what makes a good sexual partner?
1: Wow. Well, how about what would make the, uh, a great partner, period? You know, someone who is a good listener, someone who is non-judgmental, someone who's playful, someone who's curious, someone who's willing to be vulnerable, um, someone who's willing to learn or try new things, um, someone who can really state the truth. You know, it's the kind of thing where I almost think sex, sexual partner, wouldn't be any different than partner, right? Or best friend is uh, those kinds of qualities. That reminds me of, you know, next to the work that I was talking about earlier about um, Peggy Platz's work, you know, what makes for optimal sexual experiences over the long term is most of those characteristics had nothing to do with orgasms or body parts. It was talking about being connected, being in sync, being vulnerable, being empathic. Those were all the, the uh, across male, female, gay, straight, kinky, non-kinky. Optimal sex had to do with those kind of relational characteristics.
0: What advice would you give to couples seeking sexual satisfaction or sexual
1: Oh yeah. the absolute number one thing I think about is um, lift the criticism. You know, lift whatever criticism is going on. Be meditative. You know, be notice what your mind is saying about self or other, uh, and whatever is negative. You know, be, become a meditator to see if you can kind of disengage or let that negative thought move, just like any other meditation. You know, hopefully, our mind, I often say to patients, our minds are not our friends. First of all, in general, right? That's why we're, we're all busy psychotherapists. <laughs> if people's minds were more their friends, we'd be out of business. Um, but with sex, it's especially not our friend because most of the time there's something shameful. I'm broken. I'm I'm, not, I'm My partner doesn't find me attractive. I don't find me attractive, or I don't I don't like his or her body or whatever's going on. Mm. So I would say you know if you can lift the, the negative thoughts.
0: Towards yourself and your partner, self and other. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And maybe in relation to sex in general. You know, people who really think sex is bad, or you know, you you shouldn't be able to be that. You shouldn't be that sexual. But yeah, the negative thought. I would say that's it. The mind. Yeah. The, the body knows what to do, if your mind gets out of the
0: way.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It was always that's fun so to talk both of you.
0: Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Loveling show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time. Mm